we've heard God's law together and even sung a hymn about coming to Jesus. That's not simply an evangelistic call. It is also a call to the hearts of the people of God. For the law demands much, but all that the law demands, the gospel freely gives. And so for you, beloved, who have fled to Jesus Christ by faith, a word of assurance belongs to you. And this morning it comes from John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And because we have forgiveness of our sins, we also have the privilege of adoption. And that means we have access to the Father in heaven who desires to hear the voice of his children, even in prayer. So join me now and let's pray together by faith. Our Father in heaven, it is a privilege for us to be able to acknowledge that that is who you are to us. You are our Father. Not only are you the creator of the world and even its righteous judge, to us you've become a Father. And that not simply because we were born into the world, but because we have been born again and adopted into the family of God. Here we have brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, uncles and aunts, those that have gone before us and those that are yet to come. We thank you that the body of Christ, the family of God, is wide and expansive. On the one hand, it is gathered together this morning in this room with the people that we see around us. And yet, O Lord, even beyond the church visible, there is the church invisible. The saints that have come before us have already entered into heaven. And those who are yet to be born into this world and to become children of Zion above. We thank you, O Lord, for the fact that not only do we belong to this family, but that we have gifts that you have trusted to us to build up and encourage one another. One of those gifts is prayer. How often, O Lord, do we squander this privilege and this right, that as your children we can come boldly before the throne of grace, lifting up not simply the thoughts and the cares and the burdens of our own hearts, but even lifting up one another. And so we would pause to do that even now this morning, O Lord. We ask for those who are young and those who are old, that you'd help us to remember that we are a pilgrim people. We've come into this world, and you've granted us bodies, which your word calls tents. And when they are young, we are tempted to think that they are going to last forever and nothing can happen to them. And when we are old, we marvel at how quickly the sand of time seems to fade away. And so we pray that with the psalmist that you give us hearts of wisdom that we might number our days. Help us to walk before you with a resolved determination to glorify and enjoy you with each and every day. Help us to be good stewards of our time, our talent, and our treasure. Help us to spend the best of our energy and even our passions serving the kingdom of God. Help us, whether we have much or little, to be thankful, to learn what the Apostle Paul said, that I can be content with all things. I have learned how to abound, and I have learned how to suffer want. Help us to look not only to our own needs, but even to the interests of others, and to recognize that so many of the good gifts that you have entrusted to us, we were meant to bless others with. We pray, Lord, this morning for those who are sick and shut in. Every congregation has members that would love to be there physically, and some are hindered because their bodies are aged or even broken. Others are hindered because their minds are weary and discouraged, and some even simply choose not to come because they are struggling in their faith. And to you, Lord Jesus, who are the great physician of our souls, we pray that you would condescend to our weakness. We pray that not only would you minister to us who are here, bless those who cannot be here and those who ought to be here. Help us, O Lord, to have great regard for the body of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the way in which you've been pleased to bless our families. You know, O Lord, that one of our great treasures is our covenant children. And when they are young, we hold them in our arms and pray and ask that you would hold them in your eternal arms all the days of their life. We pray that they would not wander from the faith but cling closely to you. We pray for those who may have been tempted to stray. And we ask, O Lord, that you give them neither peace, joy, or rest until they come safely back into the arms of the loving Father who always, always receives back his prodigal children. We ask, O oh Lord, that as a church that you'd give us a heart for the lost, that not only would we cherish the good things that you've granted to us in the covenant, we pray, O oh Lord, for those who are outside, and we pray, Lord, that you would turn many hearts to yourself. It seems to be the case that every Lord's Day, quite a number of people will literally drive right past this church. And where are they going? Are they speeding headlong into eternity without you? And yet the gospel of life, the word of life, is proclaimed here faithfully. And so we pray, Lord, that you would cause this church to be, even as Jesus regarded his church, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. 
Help us not simply to love you and one another. Help us to have that love of the Savior that reached out to those who were broken and bruised, to those who every day felt the sting of sin in this present evil age, to those who are in need of the good physician and that healing ministry that only our Savior can bring. We ask, Lord, that you'd be merciful to encourage this church. Bless the ministry of its deacons. Bless the ministry of its elders. Bless the ministry of its pastor as he labors in the word and shepherds the flock that is here. And Lord, bless our families together that fathers and mothers would love one another with the affection of Christ Jesus, that covenant children would indeed know that they are being raised with a purpose and the nurture and admonition of the Lord with the hope that when they were old they would not depart from the things that they were taught, and with the desire of their parents that they would not simply be faithful and do as we have done, but they would even rise up above us to be even more faithful, prospering the work of your kingdom. We pray, Lord, not simply for ourselves. We remember our sister churches, those around the United Reformed Churches of North America, other churches and denominations with whom we have good fellowship and even the ability to co-labor. We think of our missionaries around the world who labor uh, often under the ban of persecution, under the threat of death. We know even this very day that beloved sisters of ours, your own adopted children, will take their last breath in this world. They will close their eyes even under the hands of persecution, and yet they will open those eyes again in eternity and see your face. And so we pray for those who suffer for righteousness' sake. We pray for those who are tempted to grow weary in doing good. We pray not simply for foreign missionaries who are far away, but even uh, for church planters and evangelists here in our own country. Uh, we marvel, O oh Lord, at the darkness that we see. Which of us can turn on the TV now without being discouraged in some manner with what we see? Uh, so many in elected positions have such little regard for the unborn, for people who bear your image, for those who cannot protect themselves. And therefore, as you tell us to in your word, we pray for those that rule over us in the civil arena. We think of local servants, statewide servants, and even elected national officials. And in the language of Proverbs 16.1, O Lord, we pray that you who can turn the hand of a king like a stream of water, we pray that you do exactly that. Grant repentance to our nation's leaders. Strengthen and embolden those who stand up for your word and even what is true and right in your sight. And help us to remember as the people of God that while we may indeed have an earthly citizenship here for which we are grateful, our true citizenship is in heaven. And one day our Savior shall return. And no longer shall we bear the cross of this present evil age. Then we shall be adorned with the crown. And we will see your face. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that until that day comes, you would help us to be faithful in small things that we might show ourselves worthy to be entrusted with even more. And help us to keep our eyes upon the prize, which is Christ himself, until we see his face. And therefore we pray in his name. Amen. We're going to sing once more. If you would please take your Psalter hymnal in hand, and we'll stand and sing 105C verses 1, 3, and 5.
There are two texts I'd like you to open up to this morning, Genesis 29 and John chapter 4. Scripture tells us elsewhere that the grass outside will wither, flowers will fade away, but the word of the living God will endure forever. Therefore, the people of God strive to hear and to heed God's word faithfully together. This is the word of the Lord. Genesis 29, 1-12. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jesus said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Now please turn over to John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. And he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Dear Holy Spirit, we pray to you now because we believe it is you who first inspired these words. We also believe that by your power, you have preserved them and their integrity down to this very day. But we also believe in particular that it is your intention to bless the reading and especially the preaching of your own word, that faith might be worked in the hearts of the people of God, and that the Father, the Son, and you, the Holy Spirit, should be glorified in the church. So have your way with our hearts even now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I recognize that around the room, not everyone here is married. Some of you are, and some of you will be, and it will likely be the case, or is the case, that on that occasion, when you happen to meet your spouse, it will become a day that you never forget. My wife and I will be married 27 years on the 27th of this month, which is Wednesday, reminding myself to make sure there's absolutely no possibility whatsoever that I could forget. Uh, we have fantastic plans. And I can remember when I first met Heather, I was a student in Bible college. Uh, like many young men here, I was praying for a godly athletic hippie chick. That was the particular way that I was praying. I was converted uh, following a band called the Grateful Dead, and there's all kinds of crazy backstory I can tell you later. But that was my prayer request. I was praying for a godly athletic hippie chick. And the day that Heather came to the college, her dad was the president of my school. Uh, she was attending another school. She was on fall break. She came into the school cafeteria. She was barefoot, wearing a very modest uh, broom skirt, if you remember what those are. She had a long braid running down the side of her hair, these kind of nerdy glasses hiding behind them, very, a very beautiful set of blue eyes. And as soon as I saw Heather, every other woman in that cafeteria began to grow a beard. It was a remarkable thing. There she was, the woman that I would marry. I knew that day that I was going to marry her. She tells me all the time that it's really good that I did not tell her that. But if you're thinking now about perhaps where you met your spouse, if you have one, or maybe where you might meet your spouse sometime in the future, where do people meet their spouses in the Bible? Well, there's actually a very interesting dynamic in the Bible that very often people meet their spouses at wells. Often it's beside a well that wedding bells begin to play. And I'm going to allude to a few in the Old Testament that are very important and help us to understand what happens with Jesus and the woman at Samaria in John 4. But just a quick stroll across a couple of stones in the Old Testament uh, earlier in the book of Genesis, we read from Genesis 29, but earlier in the book of Genesis, Abraham sends his servant back to the people of his homeland. And there that servant sits down beside a well. His mission is very clear. He is to go and to find a wife for Isaac. And so he sits down beside a well and he begins to pray. And he says, Lord, might it be the case that as soon as I finish this prayer, might you answer the prayer of your servant, Abraham, and provide for him a wife for his son, Isaac. And so he prays, and he opens his eyes, and there stands a young lady named Rebecca, who will become the wife of Isaac. And in a certain sense, wedding bells begin to play. In the text that we read, Genesis 29, the trend begins. There Jacob has gone down. He is fleeing from Esau. He goes to the land of Laban, <clears throat> his uh, relative, and there he comes to this well that will become, and is already known as the well of Jacob. And there, as he is at that well, he meets a young lady named Rachel. And when he sees her, there's this very interesting exchange. I have four kids, two daughters. I'm a little uncomfortable with how quickly this young man kissed this strange girl. Perhaps you caught that, however. 
But not only is there uh, this sort of innocent exchange of a kiss, even more importantly, when Jacob comes into the scene and Laban and Jacob meet, they are described with this kindred language. And Laban at the end says, Surely you are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is the language that associates with marriage in Genesis chapter 2. And the point is, uh, there's something about to happen here between Jacob and Rachel. Wedding bells begin to play. And the trend continues. When Moses flees from Egypt, early in the book of Exodus, he immediately goes out and he sits down in a foreign land. And where does he sit of all places but beside a well? And you can see it coming now. There sitting beside that well, he meets a young lady named Zipporah. And once more, for another meaningful figure in the Old Testament, he finds his spouse at a well. So what about Jesus? What is going on here in John chapter 4? When Jesus comes to this well, is there any sense in which we ought to wonder, even here, if wedding bells are going to begin to play between Jesus and the woman at the well? To say it differently, might she be a part of the bride of Christ? Well, there are a number of reasons why John would actually have us to think about weddings, even as we engage John 4. If you take a step or two back from our chapter, where does Jesus perform his first miracle? It's at a wedding. It's a remarkable thing that he does. There at the wedding in Cana in John 2, Jesus takes ordinary wine, excuse me, ordinary water, and he converts it miraculously into not just okay wine, but really, really good wine. And all of God's people said amen. But at that wedding, a question is raised by those who are there. They ask John the Baptist, are you the Messiah, or should we seek another? The question is, John... Are you the one that we are looking for? And Jesus gives a very particular kind of response. Excuse me. Uh, John gives a very particular kind of response. He says, no, I am not the Messiah that you are looking for. But if you want to know who I am, think about me like a best man at a wedding. I'm not the groom. I don't get the girl and ride off into the sunset. In fact, I'm really just here to help and to set the stage. Another is coming. He is the groom. He is the one for whom all things are being set. I am simply the best man. But if you have now, John is the best man. And John makes it clear, Jesus is the groom. If you're going to have a wedding, what do you need? You need a bride. So where is the bride of whom John speaks? Where is the bride that potentially Jesus has come to seek? Well, before you get to John 4, it's very important that you think briefly about John 3, because there you have a possible candidate. Jesus has come seeking, but who will he find? Jesus is on, if you will, a mission trip, but for whom and how will that go? In John 3, you meet a very likely candidate and a man called Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a very important figure, literally. He is the best of the best of the best of Israel. He is the finest show that Israel can offer. He is a male pharisaical teacher of the law. He is one who's grown up uh, bearing, if you will, the yoke of Yahweh. He is the best of the best of the best, sir. He truly is, all things Israel, a champion of sorts, except for just one thing. When Jesus and Nicodemus meet, Nicodemus doesn't get it. He doesn't understand the kingdom, and he doesn't recognize the king. In fact, one of the most nonsensical conversations in the Bible takes place as Jesus attempts to explain to Nicodemus, the teacher of the law, what is required to inherit the kingdom. It's not simply being a Jew or male or a Pharisee or even a law keeper. Jesus makes it very clear to Nicodemus that in order to inherit the kingdom, Nicodemus must be born again. And then, arguably, the dumbest thing in the entire Bible is said by Nicodemus, this expert teacher of the law who responds to Jesus when Jesus says, you must be born again. Nicodemus actually asks this question, do you mean I have to go back into my mother's womb? It's a really dumb question. Are you kidding me? It's awkward to even contemplate. And yet this is the answer that Nicodemus gives. But Nicodemus not only doesn't get it, 
Notice how he comes to Jesus. He comes to Jesus at night in the darkness. In the Gospel of John, uh, darkness and night are spiritual metaphors for unbelief. Nicodemus is something like a snake. He does not come to Jesus by day. He comes secretly, stealthily by night, almost like a snake slithering in to the garden. And then after this conversation, puzzled and befuddled and still far from the kingdom, once more does Nicodemus slither back out of the story, though he does come back in sometime later. But what is the point? Nicodemus, this pharisaical teacher of the law, does not understand the kingdom of God. He is not ready. His time is not yet. So if John has set a stage for Jesus as the groom who is seeking a bride, And Nicodemus, the representative of all things Israel, does not stand at this moment as the likely recipient of that kingdom. Where is the bride? Where is the bride of Yahweh who will be sought and saved into the kingdom of God? This is what brings us to John 4. The woman we meet in John 4 is the perfect opposite of Nicodemus. If he is the best of the best of the best, sir, she is the lowest of the lowest of the lowest, ma'am. Nicodemus is a male Jewish pharisaical teacher of the law, self-righteous in all his ways. The woman at the well that we meet now uh, is not simply female. She is Samaritan. She is a half-breed. I am half black, half white. Uh, The Jews had a significant disdain for the Samaritans. They were the half-breed, part resident, part Gentile exiles that were living in the land down the road after the exile, and the Jews disdained the Samaritans. She is theologically confused at every possible level, but even worse, we might ask the question, how righteous is her life? This woman's life is in shambles. The way the stage is set is rather beautiful in a number of ways. Jesus, we are described, had to go through Samaria, Samaria, The old King James put it this way. He has must needs to go through Samaria. It's like he's on something of a mission trip. There is nothing incidental or coincidental. It is all providential and intentional. He is seeking and saving. And he has just had, if you will, a near miss with Nicodemus. And so now he leaves. He must go. And he comes to Samaria and he sits down at a well. And it is high noon, the heat of day. You should see the contrast. Nicodemus hid under the cloud of night, but this woman is also hiding, but not under the cloud of darkness, but rather the light of the full sun. For a woman to come and draw water at noon would be out of context. And a a Jewish reader of this text would notice that's not what they do. The women of the town would draw water twice a day. And they would always draw in the morning and in the evening at the corners of the day when the light was dim and the sun was not hot. But this woman, by contrast, comes during the heat of day when the sun is in its full blaze. This is not an accident. She is not confused. She is doing this on purpose. She comes alone at this time of day because she is avoiding the women of the town who would come in the morning and in the evening. This is a woman who is not looking for company. She is willfully isolated and alone. She comes alone, bearing her reproach, bearing her shame, bearing her alienation. In many ways, the empty bucket that she carries is the perfect summary of her entire life. It is dry, it is parched, and it is empty. Her whole life is summarized in that bucket. But on this day, when once more her empty life is blighted under the hot sun at full noon, this day something will be different. It's not simply she who's going out seeking, water that is. It is someone else who is seeking her. And it is Jesus. And as he sits down and she comes up to draw for her water, Jesus asks her for a drink. She is puzzled that he would ask her for a drink because Jews not only did not interact with her, there was quite a big distance between uh, men and women at that time, especially strangers. But Jesus overcomes that. What socially alienates people in this world, Jesus so often overcomes. And he begins to speak to her of the kingdom, just as he did with Nicodemus. And he says to her, if you knew the gift of God, you would ask for it and you would receive living water. 
Now there's something kind of curious about this. This woman comes with a bucket. Jesus sits there with no bucket. This woman comes and is able to draw water. Jesus sits there with no water to give. So about what is he speaking? She's the one with the bucket. He has none. He has already asked her for water. And now he is saying to her, you should be asking me. How does she respond? Sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. I've not accomplished quite a lot in my life this far, but I've done one thing. I actually have a lot of joy in it. I created a word. I invented a word. I'm going to tell you what the word is. It's a great word. You You have my permission to use it. Snarcastic. It's part snarky enhanced by sarcasm. Snarcastic. And you often know when somebody's being snarcastic because it comes with a little dimple that says, I gotcha, sir, you just offered me water, but I'm the one with the bucket. You can't do it. You can't give me what you offer. But Jesus looks past the snarcasm. She asks a question that's very appropriate, more than she knows. Are you greater than Jacob? Jesus responds, if you understood the water that I'm referring to, and if I give it to you, you would never be thirsty again. It would become in you a spring welling up even unto eternal life. And she reacts positively, entirely missing the point. Perhaps the most pregnant phrase he used was eternal life, but that's not what she heard. What she heard was, I will not be thirsty again. No more coming here with my bucket. And so she says to Jesus, Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty nor have to come here again. Now it's very important to notice what Jesus does or does not do here. In a certain sense, he does not echo the language of John 3.16. He does not unpack in the simplest ways the four spiritual laws. He does not refer even at this point to his own death and resurrection. There is a sense in which uh, she may be in the presence of Jesus, but she is not quite ready to understand who he is and all that he has come to truly bring. First, she must understand the depth and the extent of her own depravity. Jesus may indeed love her and have a wonderful plan for her life, you might say, but he does not ignore all that is wrong and sinful in her life. To say it differently, the law comes before the gospel, and it comes in the most piercing way in verse 16 when Jesus says to her, Go and call your husband. You remember that snarcastic dimple on the cheek? It just disappeared. She is pierced and unmasked with this phrase. Go call your husband. You could almost imagine if her voice were a little bit high a moment ago, now it drops down a full octave as she says, I have no husband. Lonely, broken, empty words. I have no husband. I have come here alone. I am neither married nor befriended. I am alone in life. I am alone in the morning. I am alone at night. Jesus now begins to confront her with her past. The mask truly is off. When he says to her, you are right in saying that you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. The woman is a five-time loser in love. And not only that, she is now with a man who is not your husband. And the English actually uh, kind of makes it sound a little bit less forceful than it actually is. The Greek literally reads like this. You've had five husbands, and the man you're now having, that's how it reads, is not your husband. She is not simply a five-time loser. She is a serial adulteress. She is a woman who has gone from man to man. She has, as the old song goes, looked for love in all the wrong places and never found it. She's been used and abused. She's been objectified and discarded. Man after man after man. Imagine what it would be like to be known in a small town like this as the woman who's had five husbands and is now living with a man outside of marriage. She would be like a female wolf, a predator. Men would be uncomfortable around her. And what would the town women say? Women can be cruel sometimes. This woman is a predator of sorts. But Jesus, again, 
has not come simply to pour salt in her wound, but rather grace in her heart, grace that begins for her, as with all of us, as by seeing the reality of our sins, and not simply our sins, but their ravaging, ruining consequences, that sin is often like a liar at night that tells us and promises much, only to leave us cold, alone, and empty on the floor, never satisfied, never made whole, never truly full. That woman's bucket really is the perfect summary of her life. Her life is a train wreck. Man to man to man, over and over and over, seeking her satisfaction, seeking her identity in all the wrong places. Young people, learn the lesson here. The flesh offers much, and it always takes more than it gives. This woman has embraced many men, but never truly embraced the God of her redemption. How do you respond when you get cornered? Some of us talk. Some of us get nervous. She gets a little chatty. She changes the subject. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Let me see if I can get out of this little corner by bringing up that old debate between the Jews and the Samaritans. Let's talk theology. Let's talk worship. But Jesus' response, in a certain sense, is not ethnic but eschatological. Mountains, he says, time is coming when all these mountains will be dust. But God has come. He has already come. And he's come to seek true worshipers. We often sometimes talk about a phrase, seeker-sensitive churches. And I want to tell you that this will surprise you perhaps for an OPC minister, uh, but I believe wholeheartedly in seeker-sensitive churches. And you should too. But we should understand by that, it's not man seeking God. It's God seeking man. Jesus is seeking his bride. Yahweh is seeking his people God is seeking true worshipers. And so he makes it very clear that he is seeking her. If you come down to the bottom of verse 26, the verse just above it, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Some of the most beautiful language in the Gospel of John used many times used in many chapters when she says I know that the Messiah is coming who will tell us all things Jesus' response there is not simply uh, I speak to you am he but again if you don't mind it just one more time in the Greek it reads like this I who speak to you I am this is the great name of Yahweh this is Jehovah who spoke to Moses in Exodus 3.14 when Moses asks, who shall I say has sent me? And Jehovah says to Moses, tell them I am has sent you. It is the God who not only saved Israel and brought them out of Egypt. It is the God who made covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who promised to go before and behind his people and to always be with them. The eternal I am of heaven and earth is now standing there before her in the flesh. But he speaks not with the thunder of Mount Sinai, but rather the gentle voice of a shepherd, even a servant savior who has come not simply to expose her sins, but to cleanse her sins and to wash her with that living water that alone can cleanse and alone can satisfy. Jesus has come to her, but not like other men have, who have all come to take, to use and abuse, to take what they want and discard the rest. Jesus has rather come to lay down his life for her. This, young man, is the measure of a man. One who comes not to take, but to give. A servant, savior, to wash his bride in the word of life. One who's come not simply to expose her nakedness and her shame, but rather to clothe her with his own righteousness and love. When Jesus comes to this woman, indeed it is with that of something of a wedding betrothal, but not a wedding in the earthly style. Not a wedding of the flesh, but rather a union of the spirit. And truly, beloved, wedding bells for this woman certainly begin to play. And it raises a wonderful question. On this splendid day, so unexpectedly, this woman met Jesus. Have you? There is such a huge difference between coming to church and coming to worship. And many people pass through one door and out the other. 
But have you come to truly, sweetly, savingly know Jesus? Has he removed your mask and exposed to you the sinful realities of your own life, making it so very clear that that bucket you might be trusting in is empty and dissatisfying, but in him and in him alone is the water of eternal life. In him and in him alone is true satisfaction, joy, and peace. Have you said yes to the marriage betrothal of Jesus, who is Yahweh in the flesh? Well, for those who have, notice what this woman does. I love this. The end of the text is just a fantastic uh, crescendo. When you come down to the end, notice in verse 27, we'll read it quickly. The pace is quick. After Jesus reveals himself, the disciples come back, and they marvel that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. When the disciples come back, it's awkward. Jesus is not just talking to a woman. He's talking to a Samaritan woman. He's talking to that woman. They don't even know what to say. But what does she do? This is beautiful. This, beloved, is a heart that's been touched by the sweet grace of our Redeemer. She leaves. But she doesn't simply leave. She leaves empty-handed. And what's remarkable about that is that she did not come empty-handed. She came with a bucket, an empty bucket, a dry bucket, a used and wore-out bucket that in many ways summarize her loneliness, her isolation, her shame, her sin, her misery. And not only does she leave the bucket, with whom does she leave that worthless bucket? With Jesus, who is now worth everything to her. There's a great theologian of the past. He doesn't get a lot of credit. His name is Thumper. He's in the movie Bambi. And he turned this fantastic phrase to describe a heart that's been won by the grace of Jesus. It's called... Twitterpated. I was once sternly rebuked by a small person like this tall. I said it was Twitter padded. And they said, no, 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 it's Twitter pated. Anyway, you know what I'm trying to do there. That's what happens to this woman. Her heart is just immediately so overwhelmed by having met Jesus that that bucket that summarizes her life is no longer of any value to her. And she does not simply leave it. She leaves it with Jesus. How fitting is that? All her sin, all her shame, all her loneliness, all her isolation summarized in this little bucket now left with Jesus because he has become her life. And so much so her life that this text that began by describing somewhat awkwardly a woman coming alone at high noon to draw water, clearly avoiding the women of the town, now reverses the narrative and goes back to the town, but not simply without her bucket, on a mission trip. For the very women she woke up that day intent to ignore, to run from, to hide from. She goes back to town and it says in inclusive language, possibly of men and women, she goes back to the town and she says to the people, come and see this man who told me all that I ever did. Imagine a woman known as a town in a town as a serial adulterer, adulteress, coming back and speaking this way. This could be him. I think this could be the Messiah. She's so overwhelmed, so twitterpated by the love that she's just been shown, by the honesty that she's just heard about, by the hope of living, cleansing, refreshing water that no longer is her sin, her shame, her loneliness, her isolation. No longer are those barriers between her and the people. Jesus has become the glue. The reason why those people need to meet the man that she just met. The day that I proposed to Heather, we were in coastal North Carolina. Uh, I worked this kind of crazy job, throwing 50-pound boxes of frozen chicken all day. And that morning, we went to the beach together and did the devotions on the beach as the sun was rising. I'm kind of old school. I cooked muffins that day. She knew something was up because I'm not a good cook. And as we finished our devotions, it was a cloudy day. I drew a circle around her in the sand, and I, I got down on one knee and I proposed to her and, and because she's blind she said yes and as she did the clouds broke and angels playing harps began never mind but it was really quite beautiful and it was 
beautiful, not just for me, but even for her. Heather is as introverted as I am extroverted. I never stop talking to strangers. She thinks it's insanity. But that day she jogged home from the beach, as she often did. And as she was jogging along the street, there was an older woman there tending her roses. And Heather just had to stop and tell this lady, look at this. This crazy guy just proposed to me. He wants to spend the rest of his life with me. He knows me, and he loves me anyway. He has said he will lay down his life for me. How much more was this woman touched? And if you think I press too far on the idea of a marriage betrothal, I want to point out something a Jewish reader would catch and that you may have missed. This woman has had five husbands, and she's now having a man. And even I can do the math on that, that five plus one is six, which is a very lonely number in the Bible. It's also a very frustrated number, an incomplete number. So if she's had five husbands, and she's now living with Mr. Not Right, number six, who will be the perfect man? It is Jesus, the one who's come to lay down his life for his bride, to wash her in that water that will eternally wipe away her sin and make her ready for the glorious union between himself and his church. One of the things I want to challenge and encourage you on is to think about this woman and the way that Jesus touches her heart in some ways as a little bit of a model for how God would have his church to think about evangelism. Jesus does not tell her to go back to the town. He does not tell her to go and to talk to the people. She actually just does it. And she does it wise for one simple reason. She's met Jesus and her life will never be the same. She's met Jesus and she can't even look at the town people now the same way. She's met Jesus and her bucket is something of her past to be left behind. Why? Because now she is abounding with living water. But the Bible actually holds this woman up as an example. In many ways, she is the emblem of the church. The first, if you will, in the Gospel of John to receive the kingdom that Nicodemus is not quite ready for, but she also embodies the voice of the church in the world. If you would, please turn with me to one last place, Revelation 22. This is a beautiful, beautiful commentary on our text. It's really easy to find if you get to the table of contents. You've gone too far. Or weights and measures. Revelation 22, please look at verse 17. This is written by John. It is the same author. It is impossible that he does not have John 4 in his mind. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. When that woman left Jesus to go back to the town people, what was the first word out of her mouth? It's this word. It's come. What is the voice of the church in the world, to the world, until Jesus comes and the world is finally uh, consummated in the glory for which it was intended and the church and her Savior are truly everlastingly one? The church says to the world, come. Come and meet Jesus. Come and meet the one who told me all that I ever did. Come and meet the one who unmasked me and exposed the wages and reality of my sin. Come and meet the one who alone could wash me and make me clean and offer me eternal life. Come and meet the one who took away my empty bucket and made me full in him. This is the church's story, beloved. You are part of that bride. And I'll just say very briefly, I grew up outside the church. My dad left our family when I was 12. I started doing drugs and stupid. Failed my senior year of high school. Shot at twice. Went to jail. Had to repeat my senior year because I was a horrible student. All kinds of trouble. Broke my mom's heart over and over and over. And by God's grace, in my early 20s, in the most remarkable of ways, God brought me sweetly and savingly to himself. I have a lot in common with the woman at the well. The before and the after. And I imagine as I stand here and speak to you, most of you probably have the opposite story. 
your life might not be summarized by that empty bucket. You probably haven't had five husbands in a serial, adulterous relationship. In fact, many of you have likely been raised up in the arms of the church. In fact, uh, to put it uh, quite pointedly, your stories might almost seem boring because there's not a lot of flash in the pan. But let me ask you this. It's a very important question. It's a very personal question. Who has the finer story? The one who has gone to hell and back like the woman at the well? Or the one who's been raised up in the arms of the church by faithful, albeit imperfect, pastors and parents who have labored for them in word and deed, in prayer and in service? Who has the finer story? The kid that goes to jail and comes back and finds his way in the arms of Jesus? Or the covenant kid? who actually stays fairly within the rails and not only uh, walks with God, but marries well. One day meets their bride, their spouse, their husband, whatever it might be, and raises up uh, another generation to serve and honor and glorify and enjoy the Lord. Who has the finer story? I can assure you, if the woman at the well lived to remarry an earthly husband and have children, she would not want her children to have that story. She would not want her daughters to be used and abused, objectified and discarded, any more than I as a dad, a husband, and a father want my children to have my story. I want them to have your story. You have a beautiful story because you have a beautiful Savior. And as he came seeking and saving the woman at the well, he has come and he has sought you. And he has washed away your sins. He has clothed you with his own righteousness, he has given you a voice that as a church we say to the world, come and meet the one who is finer than all the things of this world. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for wedding bells. We don't hear them often, but when when we do, they're quite lovely. And we recognize, O Lord, how beautiful it was that day this woman woke up. It was just another day of loneliness, of isolation, of dejection and hopelessness. Imagine the end of that day. No longer afraid of the people of the town. No longer weighed down by the burden of her sins. No longer lonely, hopeless, and alone. But rather as one who has just been truly courted by the grace of God.